Hey man, how's it going, y'all? Happy Friday. Today's Friday, right? Yeah. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Appreciate y'all tuning in. You must want to know what's right. I'll do my best for you here, you know. This kind of thing, if I can. Alright, so, uh, yeah, it's basically anti-war radio. That's what it is. Um, and I got a ton to talk about on the show today. I'm gonna have some help from Eli Clifton. Oh, I forgot my backup recorder here. Uh, Eli Clifton, he's great, man. I forget who Wally writes for or what, but, uh, he's at Low Blog and he has a thing on the Saudi lobby. I think it'll be very interesting for you. And I have some kind of extracurricular questions that are off topic of this exact article, but it's stuff that he really knows about, uh, that I'm gonna ask him too about, well, about the Islamophobia industry in America. Uh, there's a real push. It's not just um, ignorance and stupidity. It's a massive propaganda campaign to make you hate and fear Arabs and Muslims. And eh, I think, you know, the best inoculation is to expose it for what it is. It's people trying to manipulate you. If you hate and fear Muslims, it's not even because you hate and fear Muslims. It's because you have a tiny little pea brain like an animal and you've been told and made to think that by people who actually are not looking out for you at all but their own interests you idiots so you know it seems appropriate that i would have uh eli clifton explain how that works since he's the man when it comes to that subject so that'd be cool the great eli clifton um, okay, so, uh, yeah, oh yeah, I should say, cause I like saying this, join up the chat room. Got us a chat room. My website is scotthorton.org. And if you add a slash chat onto the end of that, well, that's where you'll head up. Uh, you don't need a X chat or a chatzilla or a pigeon or any of them other type chat programs. I'm sure there must be a million of them. Uh, you can use those. Hashtag Scott Horton Show if you want. It's an IRC free node chat room. But you could just use a plain old browser window, Internet Exploder, Mozilla, or Chrome, or whatever. They still have Safari and Opera and all that stuff. Oh, I guess Safari's the Apple one. They still have Opera? Is that a thing? Anyway, yeah, whatever. Plain old browser window. Uh, scotthorton.org slash chat. And then you hang out with the boys and sometimes discuss stuff a little bit. Okay, um, so now the news. Oh, nope, more housekeeping. Trevor Tim is going to be on the show on Monday. Isn't that great? Yep, it is. Okay, um, and uh, one more thing, too, and that is that last night I did a show with Jacob Hornberger on Liberty.me, a youtube type of a show there. You can find it on YouTube and at Liberty.me. It's called The Future of Freedom. Me and Bumper Hornberger there. Uh, talking mostly about guns and Oregon, the, the whole, uh, the rancher situation, the national government's ownership of all the land in the West, or, you know, so much of the land in the West. And, uh, and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. 
I think you might like it. You know, if you like me and you like Jacob Hornberger. It's supposed to be me interviewing him, although I think I talk too much. I need to ask more questions. But I like yelling and screaming. I will if I have the opportunity to. So, anyway. If you like those kinds of things, there it is at liberty.me. The future of freedom with me and Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night. Except when holidays are in the way and stuff. But otherwise, every Thursday night, me and Jacob Hornberger, uh, 8 o'clock Eastern Time. Did one last night. You might like it. Okay. Um, all right. So now, I get to talk about libertarianism things here for a minute. Kelly Vallejos has this really nice article in the American Conservative Magazine. Did you know that? It's called An Enduring Domain for Peace. And it's about antiwar.com. 20 years of antiwar.com. That's when Justin uh, and Eric, well, it was Eric, bought the URL and uh, started antiwar.com in opposition to uh, Bill Clinton's intervention in Bosnia. And then, of course, they got a lot bigger in 1999 during Bill Clinton's war in Kosovo, his uh, post-acquittal victory lap in the spring of 99. Um, and then, of course, you know, ever since then. But so, uh, yeah, Eric Garris, he's the... Whichever Hindu god that is with the many arms, that's Garrus at the center of the whole thing, making everything go in a uh, superhuman kind of capacity. And then, of course, Justin writes behind the headlines three times a week. And as Justin says in the quote in this article, you know, what's what's the most important claim to fame that they can make other than being right about everything this whole time, each and every one of the wars and every damn aspect of it? I think Justin really nails it. That antiwar.com, uh, and Justin in particular, uh, was the first to really solidify and popularize the idea that a small coterie of neoconservatives inside the Republican Party, inside, Repu- you know, conservative media, and especially the vice president's office, the Pentagon and the State Department, took America to war in Iraq. It wasn't the Republicans. It wasn't the oil men. It wasn't, you know, the right. It was the neocons. A few dozen men, as Seymour Hersh likes to put it, nine men took over the entire government. Colin Powell himself, the Secretary of State, said they created a separate government. And this is years later. This is what Justin was saying in 2001 and 2002. In fact... Uh, I believe our hijacked foreign policies from February 2002. And it's Justin talking about how the neocons uh, have taken Washington and Baghdad is next. Regime change is on, uh, you know, way more than a year before. And why? And who? And no one else was saying that. A neocon, everybody hears the name neocon now. Not everybody knows what it means. But everybody's familiar with the term. But I think it really was Justin more than anyone else who popularized that term and got people to understand and recognize. And just think if that had been, you know, much more widespread, if, if, you know, if the media had been a little bit more honest and had told the right that, of course, you understand that your intellectual leadership is a couple of dozen former communists. And they're the ones who tell all you idiots what to think. They used to love the USSR more than America. 
but now they're right-wing hawks. And in your brain. But anyway, hey, whatever. Kill who they say. Fight a war for Iran. (laughs) And for Osama. At the same damn time. In Iraq. If that's what Richard Pearl, the student of Albert Wolstetter, the former communist, and Leo Strauss, the former communist, say to do. Well... We used to be one-world revolutionaries who wanted the Kremlin to rule the whole world. Now we're one-world revolutionaries who want Washington, D.C. to rule the whole world. So you see, it's a big move from left to right there. Anyway, Justin's right. He deserves a hell of a lot of credit for that. And uh, thanks to Kelly for saying a nice thing about me. And Well, she mostly she allows Angela to say that, you know, my show is good for something in there. So I appreciate that as well. But you know what? 20 years of antiwar.com. Eric and, and Justin especially uh, deserve the credit. Jason Ditz, I think there could have been a little bit better write-up of the work that Jason has been doing for the last you know few years here. He's not just aggregating the news. He's doing a lot of good reporting there at news.antiwar.com. But anyway, um, and of course, Jeremy and Matt Bargainer, the editors and webmasters for years and years there, and made the thing go. John Glazer contributed a lot for a few years there. Anyway, back in a minute, y'all. Hey, y'all. Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com Don't you get sick of the Israel lobby trying to get us into more wars in the Middle East? Or always abusing Palestinians with your tax dollars? It once seemed like the lobby would always have full-spectrum dominance on the foreign policy discussion in D.C. But those days are over. The Council for the National Interest is the America lobby, standing up and pushing back against the Israel lobby's undue influence on Capitol Hill. Go show some support at CouncilForTheNationalInterest.org. That's CouncilForTheNationalInterest.org. All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. Uh, coming up here in a while, we'll have our old friend Eli Clifton. So where we left off, I was talking about this uh, real nice Kelly Vallejos article at the American Conservative Magazine about the 20th anniversary of Antiwar.com. And speaking of which... Uh, Justin Romando's article today on antiwar.com is about Murray Rothbard and why and how it is he's a Rothbardian libertarian and why antiwar.com is antiwar.com, uh, why that's due to Murray Rothbard and his influence. And it's an interesting article. It's more personal. Justin, of course, uh, you may or may not be familiar. Uh, Justin Romando at antiwar.com uh, wrote a biography the biography of Murray Rothbard, an enemy of the state. And it's really good, man. You ought to read that thing. You'll really like it. Um, so, uh, yeah, and he, he certainly was a student of Murray's for a long time. Anyway, so um, I think there's something lacking in Justin's article. <clears throat> for some reason, there's not a bunch of links in the thing. Um, and there should be a bunch of links to a bunch of Rothbard stuff. 
And what's funny is Justin wrote the article yesterday. He says on January 7th, the anniversary of Rothbard's death. And uh, I guess the 21st anniversary. He died at the beginning of 95. And um, so what's interesting about that is I had in my notes yesterday on the show Rothbard. I just every once in a while I like to mention this for you newbies. There's a few good articles I'd like you to read. And if I have some free time on the show, I like to mention them. And I didn't get to it yesterday. But just coincidentally, I uh, had that in my notes. So I'll go ahead and mention them to you now. Um, my very most favorite of all is called Left and Right, The Prospects for Liberty. You can find all this online, no problem. Left and Right, The Prospects for Liberty. And it's written by Murray Rothbard in I'm fairly certain 1968. And, uh, well, I can't really sum it up. I guess, in a sense, his argument is, and you don't have to buy the whole thing to learn so much from it, that the the point he's making is that the individualist anarchist is the true all the way to the left. And everything on the right is statism. And, and so even communism and socialism and all those things are to the right of full left individualist anarchism. Now that doesn't exactly make sense in every way. Um, but there's a lot to it. The way he says that, you know, those who were the liberals bought into the conservative means of state power and became conservatives themselves. And he's referring to the socialists, those who abandoned liberty in favor of uh, state promises of liberal outcomes. And it's such a great article, man. You really got to read it. And I've given it to so many people and, and so many honest, you know, interested leftists who have said, wow, that's some mind-blowing stuff, man. I really got to readjust a few things I thought about some things that I thought. It's really good. Left and right. The Prospects for Liberty. And then there's War, Peace, and the State, where he says, I'm pretty sure that war is the key to this whole libertarian business. You're damn right. If we ain't good on war, we ain't nothing at all. And War, Peace, in the State, man, it's great. It's good for your brain. Please read it with your eyes. Or listen to it if you can tell your computer to read articles to you, however that works. Whatever. Um, I bet you can find um, Jeff Riggenbach on YouTube reading it probably. War, Peace, in the State by Murray Rothbard. And then Anatomy of the State. That's not focused so much on foreign policy, but it's still really good. Anatomy of the State, what the state is and what it is not. You know, your security force? Yeah, that, that's not what it is. Um, that's a great one. Wall Street, Banks, and American Foreign Policy is a wonderful revisionist history of the 20th century that I think would just do so much to inform. You know what it is? It's sort of like the John Birch conspiracy theory history of the 20th century where, you know, the, the Morgan and then Rockefeller bankers were behind everything, only without all the kooky crap about the Illuminati and world communism and all this and that. Um, you know, as though the Rockefellers are communists rather than just making money off of them and, and, you know, making money off of having an enemy. So Rothbard is Rothbard. He's telling that same sort of revisionist history, but without all the right wing baggage, without any of the right wing baggage. It's really great. War. No, no, no. Uh, Wall Street, banks and American foreign policy. This is one where he says World War II was just a compromise between the Morgans and the Rockefellers. The Morgans get to have their war in Europe if the Rockefellers get to have their war in the Pacific. 
great stuff, man, Murray Rothbard. And then, um, uh, let me see. I'll, I'm just going off the top of my head here of favorite Rothbard essays. I mean, there are a million books and everything else. If you want to learn about central banking, you can read a couple of very short monographs. What has government done to our money and the case against the Fed? Both of those will do so much to inform your understanding about how this world works. I swear to you, man, it's, it's all about the central bank. How do you think the government pays for all the horrible things they do? Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, yeah, I don't know. Google around, read some Rothbard. And that's not, you know, he's not a demigod. I'm not vouching for everything he ever said. He did become quite a right-wing crank in the 1990s in ways that I think if he'd lived into the 2000s, he would have been embarrassed about. Uh, but I don't give a damn because you know what? He wrote a stack of books as high as Noam Chomsky's and, and full of so much brilliance uh, and reinterpretation of history in light of an individualist understanding of freedom. And Austrian understanding of economics, it's uh, it's no mystery of why he's a hero to so many. Oh, here's another one I really liked. One of the first ones I read by him was called Confessions of a Right-Wing Liberal. Where, you see what he's doing there? This is what I try to do to you. He, he confuses all your terms so that you go, what the, huh? And then he straightens you out. He, he's unmooring you from everything that you cling so tightly to. So that he can explain what's really going on here. You know? Like, uh, you know, like saying that Mitt Romney is a socialist and Barack Obama is a fascist. These things are true. You know? You'd think, oh, Obama's to the left of Romney on most things and Romney's to the right of Obama on most things. But stop and really look at it. Obama is a right-wing corporatist, imperialist, nationalist, warmonger president. He's a hundred times the warmonger Ronald Reagan ever was. He's a fascist. And Mitt Romney is the most big government, do-gooder, compassionate, conservative, rhino, liberal, sissy, welfare state, socialist you could find in the Republican Party. You see how that works? How all your kind of previous terminology is sort of a bunch of crap? Compared to just what's actually real, which is what we want, right, is the truth. You know, these terms are only useful to the degree to which they help us describe the truth. When they're fogging our vision and pulling wool over our eyes is when we need to abandon them or or do like Rothbard. You know, work them in such a way to turn it around and heighten your understanding instead. That's confessions of a right-wing liberal, that's it. All right, I'm out of time for this segment. Back in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Scott Horton Show, Liberty Radio Network. Hey, all Scott here. On average, how much do you think these interviews are worth to you? Of course, I've never charged for my archives in a dozen years of doing this, and I'm not about to start. But at patreon.com slash Scott Horton Show, you can name your own price to help support and make sure there's still new interviews to give away. So what do you think? Two bits? A buck and a half? They're usually about 80 interviews per month, I guess, so take that into account. You can also cap the amount you'd be willing to spend in case things get out of hand around here. That's patreon.com slash Scott Horton Show. And thanks, y'all. Hey, y'all, guess what? You can now order transcripts of any interview I've done for the incredibly reasonable price of two and a half bucks each. Listen, finding a good transcriptionist is near impossible, but I've got one now. Just go to scotthorton.org slash transcripts, enter the name and date of the interview you want written up, click the PayPal button, and I'll have it in your email in 72 hours max. You don't need a PayPal account to do this. Man, I'm really going to have to learn how to talk more good. 
That's scotthorton.org slash transcripts. Hey, I'm Scott. Welcome back to the show. Hey, I forgot one. This is one more great Murray Rothbard uh, thing for you to read. Nope, two more. Damn. Uh, first of all, our anti-imperialist heritage. Our anti-imperialist heritage. You can find that at antiwar.com. It's a reprint of an interview that Rothbard did with Reason Magazine back in 1975 or something, I think. Oh, and it's so good, man. Our anti-imperialist heritage. Uh, very good stuff. Murray Rothbard there. Uh, you can find that at antiwar.com. And then also you can find chapter 14. You can read the whole damn book, too. I, I really suggest you do. It's really great, man. It really is. Um, but uh, chapter 14 of For a New Liberty is called War and Foreign Policy. And it's also excellent. War and Foreign Policy by Murray Rothbard. Chapter 14 of For a New Liberty. And you can also uh, absolutely, certainly listen to Jeff Reed, <coughs> Jeff Riggenbach read. <laughs> well, two words that start with R in a row. How am I supposed to handle that? <clears throat> you can listen to Jeff Riggenbach read chapter 14 of For a New Liberty there on uh, YouTube, or you can read the whole thing. And and as uh, number six, I think it was in the chat room, said you can find all of this at Mises.org. M-I-S-E-S, Mises.org. That's the uh, Ludwig von Mises Institute of Austrian school economics. And, man, they got 100,000 pages of written text there for free. Maybe a million, I don't know. Seriously, it's, it's such a treasure trove. You could do like a search this site for money <laughs> and see what you find. Search this site for war. Yeah. Okay, uh, yeah, that's the great Murray Rothbard. Uh, you wonder what this whole libertarianism business is about. Uh, read Rothbard. With, again, the disclaimer that, yes, there's some right-wing cranky crap that's some eye-rolling crap from the 1990s, but that's a very small percentage of it all. Okay. Um, oh, I wanted to mention this about the heroin epidemic. I don't know if you guys saw this. It's only in the news because some jerk says some jerky thing. The governor of uh, Maine was complaining that... Basically, blacks with street names, you know, are coming up from New York and selling heroin to uh, the population of Maine. And he goes, yeah, and then while they're here, they're impregnating white girls before they leave. Which caused a whole other problem, you know, of a bunch of quadroons running around or mulattoes or... No, I don't, I'm not exactly sure how he finished his statement, but this unbelievable prick, basically... Uh, running off at the mouth there. That's the only reason it's in the news. But then they're talking about, they got a real heroin problem right now. Now, I don't know if all this stuff's coming from Afghanistan or not. Why not? Uh, but, you know, apparently heroin supply is up in America. And heroin addiction, who knows? It's probably down. But they're claiming it's up. And it's in new and interesting places where it didn't used to be. And so... What a great opportunity for all reasonable adults to demand the full and complete legalization of heroin. Aren't you tired of everybody pussyfooting around this subject? 
oh, maybe legalize pot a little bit for dying grandmas, right? Because that doesn't go without saying or anything. But, oh, legalize heroin. Oh, my God. You all just soiled yourselves, right? We're all supposed to have such an emotional reaction. Oh, what a horrible thing to say. Oh, what about the message to the children? Oh, just shoot me. Heroin prohibition has failed continuously for your great-grandmother's lifetime to now to get rid of heroin or to solve the problem of opiate addiction in this society, which is now greater than ever mostly because of prescription opiates that then when people are cut off cold turkey by the government's prescription regulation system, they then resort to street drugs. And that's a certain major percentage of heroin addicts are people who, you know, have severe injuries, uh, you know, severe car wrecks and chronic pain problems. And they get their meds taken away from them arbitrarily by America's fascist dictatorship because they're not free. And they don't get to decide for themselves. It's decided by somebody else. And so then their cousin says, I know where you can get a little something that'll help you, man. And that's how they become heroin addicts. That's a big part of it. Of course, other parts of it, people, you know, who abuse drugs that bad are trying to deal with uh, previous traumas in their life and this and that. But the solution to none of this is criminalization. And look at what criminalization even means. Criminalization, of course, we think about the innocent, the most innocent victims of criminalization besides the collateral damage, you know, the wrong doors kicked in and this kind of thing are the mostly innocent non-criminal addicts, right? Who aren't criminals except for their addiction and end up doing time. But that's almost a distraction, right? That's almost as sad as that is. That's the forest for the trees. The entire problem of heroin in America isn't addiction and it isn't the persecution of the users. It's the creation by the government's ridiculous, stupid, evil laws of a black market in the product. That's it. That is where all the evil lies. Legalize it. That's it. Not decriminalize possession of it. Legalize the trade in heroin. Yes, so that Marlboro and Johnson and & Johnson and Walgreens and whatever pharmaceutical, evil, greedy, capitalist corporations can sell it on the open market and therefore eliminate all crime associated with it immediately. Drop the price down so low that addicts are not forced to resort to crime in order to pay for their addiction. And then, of course, embark, if you really care, like you pretend to care, on a civilian, private, voluntary regime of help for people with drug problems. Otherwise, just go ahead and call yourselves what you are. Pro-AIDS. Pro-overdose. Pro-street war. Over turf. Pro-death of innocent people. I'm so sick and tired of the 
the uh, pro-legalization side of this argument having to be on the defensive? Well, you don't think we should legalize heroin, do you? Oh, no, no, of course not that. You're goddamn right, legalize heroin. You are pro-AIDS. Justify your stance in favor of spreading AIDS around. Justify your stance in good people. Good people dying of heroin overdoses because they don't know the strength of the street diluted drugs that they're taking. Justify that. Justify people climbing in windows in the middle of the night, killing and being killed to steal a TV so they can pawn it so they can afford a little bit more. All the broken families, all the broken relationships, all the people dying in crimes over all the theft associated with maintaining heroin addictions. Because of the artificially high price by thousands of times. Because of the risk involved, that's the risk premium on trading in drugs. Hey, if I might go to prison for bringing this from one side of town to the other, believe me, there's going to be a markup. Right? That's where the artificially high price comes from. This whole, every bit of this crisis is the government's fault. And yes, including, of course, the occupation of Afghanistan for the last 15 years, too. And you know it. You hate government, one of them libertarian types, or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. Me. Me. It's my, ow. My swollen, bitten tongue. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. Yeah, you would think I would know how to speak without biting my tongue in half, since it's all I do all day, but no, apparently not. Oh, man. All right. So much more to talk about on the show. I guess it's a bit more of a domestic uh, policy first hour here because now I got to talk about uh, the guns, the Obama executive order on guns. So I think I told you all the story before um, when Rick from the bumper sticker from LibertyStickers.com first started going to the gun show to sell stickers there because there's some right leaning, you know, stickers and pro gun stickers and stuff. Um when he first did that, I made him a big sign that said, the gun show loophole. And that was to be, you know, to put up to be like the name of his little bumper sticker stand at the gun show. Right? Like, because they have cute little names for their booths, the gun sellers do. And uh, so I was there with him. And we watched, and no one at the gun show, no one at the gun show had any idea what that meant, what that referred to. 
that there was any such thing. And I'm going, look, these are the people most interested. These are the people whose rights are being threatened. This loophole is just a government term for a way that people are still free, that they haven't been able to destroy yet. And here, the people whose rights are being threatened have never even heard of the damn term before. Never mind, they didn't know exactly what it meant or, or you know, exactly what the threat was, what the damned Democrats were up to or not. You know what I mean? It's like when they ban assault weapons, but then they define assault weapon not as fully automatic. Those have been almost illegal, I mean, pretty much since the 30s. You have to have many levels of licenses to own fully automatic weapons in America. They define assault weapons as a pistol grip. Or, you know, these ridiculous things. Uh, an assault weapon is a rifle that makes a Democrat feel afraid if they see a picture of it. Huh? It's, it would seem to be in the interest of gun owners to be sticklers about stuff like this. Huh, guys? Huh? They're trying to take your rights away. You want to start paying attention now? Instead of just, you know, oh, the NRA will take care of it. Yeah, they won't. They've supported gun control since 1968, the NRA. You know that. Come on. And so now what's Obama doing? Obama says he's closing the gun show loophole. So what does that mean? That means when you go to a gun show, depending on the gun show, I guess, but if you go to a gun show here in Austin, Texas, 90% of the guys or more, I guess, are licensed gun dealers. They're gun dealers. They're gun businessmen. Simple as that. They all have all the licenses in the world. They run all their customers through all the background checks. There are also some people at the gun show who aren't in the gun business necessarily. They have some guns, and they're willing to sell them. And they are private dealers. And this is where Democrats all scream and cry and piss in their pants. Oh, my God. A private dealer can show up at a place... A private owner can show up at a flea market type situation and sell something he owns to someone without the FBI checking to make sure it's okay first? And so they say, this is a loophole and it must be closed. And since Congress won't close it, never mind, they don't have the authority to do so whatsoever. Obama's going to do it himself with an executive order. What? I want to read the executive order and I should, I should have a right wing gun lobbyist type on here to explain exactly what's going on. What's that guy's name? David Hardy, right? If Angela Keaton is listening, who's the best gun guy from the Waco stuff? Oh, Bovard. I should just call Bovard. But anyway, so by executive order, here's what's really going to happen, okay? Not what they say. A bunch of politics. Oh, we're going to close a gun show loophole as though Al-Qaeda and school shooters are all just going to gun shows and buying guns without background checks from private dealers, which never happened. Um, what they're really doing is they're outlawing an entire culture, basically, of private gun enthusiasts and hobbyists who buy, sell, and trade guns all day long, all the time. It's like their wives do with beanie babies or whatever right and this is not they don't all have to have background checks for this it's no different than a friend saying what someone threatened to come to your house and kill you why here borrow one of my shotguns you don't have to get a background check for that in fact have one of my shotguns or give one to your daughter as a gift so that she's safe when she's walking home you need permission from Big Brother for that? No. 
And what the pigs say, what the Democrats say, go read it at Vox.com and all this crap where they spin it. They go, no, we're not outlawing that. The executive order doesn't apply to that. If you trade a gun with a friend or a guy that you met online and you just, oh, I'll trade you this one for that one. That's not what we're talking about. We're only talking about actual gun dealer businessmen who are posing as gun enthusiasts, hobbyist types, buying and selling and trading privately. But really, we say they're over this arbitrary line into doing business with the public. Now, you know what comes next. You see it right now. Don't you see it? This is a completely arbitrary definition. Completely arbitrary. As to be determined by undercover cops. As to be determined by a new war on private gun sellers and traders and hobbyists. On an entire new area of police state enforcement. Going after people who are not criminals, making criminals out of them. Do you understand? Making criminals out of people who are not criminals. And then taking their rights and their freedom away, along with yours. And you know what? I wish that we could live in a world without guns. Sort of, because, geez, people kill each other with guns all the time. But guess what? That ain't never going to happen, ever. And really, that's stupid, because the frail still need the ability to defend themselves from the strong, and guns are a great tool for doing that. So it's not even necessarily ideal. But sure as hell isn't ideal in a world full of guns. Especially in a world full, and especially in a nation where our government has more guns than any organization in the history of the universe. You understand? Can you not imagine for a moment how much less free we would be if half the population wasn't armed to the teeth right now? We would be slaves as bad as under Nazi Germany or the communist Soviet Union. You know it! And to think that people, you know, and look, it, it, it is. I was, you can watch the video of me talking with Hornberger last night saying, Hornberger, there's 10,000 gun murders a year in this country, man. That, that's a problem. But the fact that people are willing to go from that's a problem to boo hoo, so Democrats come and criminalize millions of law abiding citizens' existence? is insanity and 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 i don't know what else you figure out what else it's not right and you know what i read a thing last night someone on twitter linked to a thing about smart guns oh you should just have a chip in your hand or a chip in your ring where your rfid works or where your gun reads your thumbprint or there's some kind of smart thing and the guy goes through and just explains how this is absolutely bunk this will never fly in a market at all. And with the government mandates, it would be such a revolution against it anyway. There's no way you could do this. And, and he explains the simple reason is, to gun owners, reliability is the single most important thing about a firearm. Period. 
You introduce software to that and just forget it. End of argument. There's nothing more you need to know. Introducing high-tech things to mechanical moving parts that people need at a moment's notice. It's never going to fly. It's completely crazy. And it just goes to show the uh, the disconnect between those with their fantasies of, you know, sociological re-engineering uh, an application of power to make things the way they want them to be versus the actual planet we live on. You know, time and space and reality and silly crap like that. You know, these liberals are just as dogmatic as any born-again you could find in Alabama with their silly beliefs. Their dangerous beliefs. Hey, Al Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Roberts & Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. And they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Roberts & Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. Eye on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday, and The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there. ScottHorton.Liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Just the one guest today, it's Eli Clifton. Hey, at least it's a good one, right? He's writing for Low Blog. This one's called Washington's Multi-Million Dollar Saudi PR Machine. Welcome back to the show. How you doing, Eli? I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me. Very happy to have you here. And, uh, well, always happy to see you covering things because uh, you always bring a lot of insight uh, to the topics that you cover. And, uh, yeah, so happy to help promote your work here. Uh, Washington's multi million dollar Saudi PR machine. How many multi millions of dollars uh, do the Saudis and their American allies spend on whitewashing uh, their criminal regime in American media, Eli? Well, certainly the Saudis spend approximately, based off of the estimates and numbers, I crunched about $6.78 million per year. That's directly in fees, uh, all in retainers, actually, on a month-to-month basis. Uh, that's that's the yearly total, though, um, for a variety of law firms, uh, lobbyists, and PR firms, all in the Beltway, most of them on K Street. Um, now, on top of that, of course, there are uh, expenses um, and, and those could could easily double that number, um, but that's just the, their monthly re- retainers added up over the course of a year. Okay, and then so, um, well, what kind of work are they doing? What's to whitewash anyway? <laughs> well, uh, certainly since their intervention in Yemen last year, um, we've seen uh, uh, really a, a number of, of 
of social media accounts, websites, um, as well as placement in major media of op-eds occurring um, of folks who, who work for these firms, as well as Saudi officials. Um, they made it, they're making a concerted effort to try to suggest that they're a regional, a, a, a good regional actor um, and, and encouraging stability in the region when many of the actions they're taking right now uh, are leading, leading a lot of folks to express concern that this major U.S. ally might be behaving in ways that, that ultimately don't serve the interests of the United States or the region as a whole. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like the current king isn't really that much worse than the ones before him, but he just is, I guess, that much clumsier at PR because it seems like the veneer has really been coming off the Saudi dictatorship there as of late. You know, I, I think that's an interesting point, and and in and, and in looking at this recently, um, and, and especially seeing how they handled starting off the year by executing a Shiite cleric that was almost guaranteed uh, to, to set off uh, problems with, with their relationship with Iran, um, and for that matter, their, their own Shia community uh, in, in Saudi Arabia, uh, it, none, none of this is new. They, they obviously have a, a difficult and, and tense relationship with Saudi Arabia, and, and really this, the Sunni-Shia divide is, is wider than it's ever been in recent years. Um, but when you look back in the past, some of the things that they, that they say and believe about, about Iran, uh, they knew to say only behind closed doors. And, and it's good to look at the WikiLeaks um, uh, uh, State Department files. Where, All where, hail Chelsea Manning doing 35 years in the brig for our government sins. I'm sorry, go ahead. Right. And, and in those, you get to see, you know, senior Saudi officials saying, uh, behind closed doors, well, you know, that we believe that Iran is the snake and the way that you destroy the snake is you cut off its head, eff- effectively endorsing military action against Iran. Um, but in those cases, even that, when it was reported, was considered sensational because that is definitely not the message that they were sending in public. Now they're taking um, a far more, for lack of a better term, crude or crass approach to to to, to their public diplomacy as well as their actual diplomacy uh, in ways that I think are making a lot of people um, take notice and express concern that the, the, the exactly that the, perhaps the the king's pot the new king's politics aren't that much different, but certainly the way he's handling himself is. Yeah, well, and there's virtually a blackout here in America, but certainly the European papers are at least admitting to the public that there is such a thing as this war in Yemen that America and Saudi have been waging for the last, what, 10 months now, uh, almost, and uh, the consequences of that. And, and you know, I had the guy on from Oxfam earlier in the week. He said this is, bar none, absolutely the worst humanitarian crisis on the face of the earth right now. And so I think that's part of it, is that's getting through to the public imagination in a way, anyway, here, even maybe without the the actual narrative of the war, I think it's just kind of helping to contribute to the idea that these guys are pretty brutal. You know, just that, that atmosphere, as they call it, you know, in, in D.C. Right. And I mean, I, th- I think Syria is if there's anything that's changing the or, or I should say making the public more interested in the regional politics, it's what's going on in Syria. Mm-hmm. The fact that I, I think at this point, most people would like to see a diplomatic resolution to the conflict there, or at least something that de-escalates it mm-hmm. uh, and 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 brings an end to the humanitarian crisis, which is now spreading across Europe uh, from, from as, as Syrian refugees get increasingly desperate to get out. Um, and it's impossible to see what Saudi Arabia is doing right now as being in any way helpful to uh, to, to improving the regional dynamics 
Uh, and as I said earlier, it only exacerbates the Sunni-Shia divide, which groups like uh, the Islamic State, as well as other proxy groups who are active in uh, in Syria, are, are actively working to, to exploit as well. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I think as far as Syria goes, I think that actually has seeped through to the public understanding a bit as well, that the Saudis are financing the Mujahideen. Now, not worse than Obama, but still, you know, that's kind of part of it that, you know, the, our government may say that Assad is the worst, uh, you know, the leader of the worst faction in Syria. But I don't think the American people are really buying that. Right. No, I, I, I think right now people just want to see an end to the conflict and, uh, and, and seeing the way Saudi Arabia is acting right now. Um, doesn't seem to be helping in any way, shape, or form. Even the State Department is is not rushing to the defense of of, of the Saudis' decision to start off the year by seeing how badly they could torpedo their relationship with Iran, um, especially right as we're at the point of saying, trying to see if we can fully implement, implement the Iran nuclear deal. Um, you know, th- th- this is just not the time or place to be doing the things that Saudi Arabia is doing. And frankly, they're going to need all the PR fire- firepower they can get. Yeah. Um, and now what all are they getting in terms of PR firepower for this money anyway? A press release here and there, a steak dinner for a congressman here and there or what? Well, it's it's a lot of outreach to congressional offices. That's certainly something you see in the Foreign Agent Registration Act filings that I that I was reporting on here. Um, so there's plenty of outreach to Capitol Hill. Now, the contents of those phone calls, we don't know, uh, but you can probably make an educated guess about about what's being said. Um, there's also a lot of exactly press releases, uh, not not just a few press releases. I'd say a lot of press releases going out trying to uh, put a positive spin on particularly the intervention in Yemen um, and now obviously um, try to smear uh, Iran as somehow the the destabilizing force in the region um, after uh, the Iranian some Iranians uh, reacted to the executions in Saudi Arabia by attacking the Saudi embassy in Tehran um, so there's certainly that going on um, and then I think that there there is a sophisticated social media uh, and digital campaign, not all of which identifies necessarily as um, operating under the auspices of these PR agencies, or at least it's in the fine print. Um, and I think that, that 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 that's there as well. And finally, traditional stuff like placing, uh, providing sources to journalists, uh, providing, uh, placing op-eds. Um, and, 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 and that's something that's always gone on and that, and that these PR companies have helped with, uh, and they continue to do so. If you, if you read, um, the New York Times and the Washington Post coverage, you see people provided by these agencies showing up. One thing I will say though is that I think the newspapers are becoming, uh, better. Um, this is, you know, entirely subjective on my part. I haven't looked at the numbers, but I think that they're identifying more clearly when they're getting sources from, uh, these PR agencies that work for the Saudi government. Well, yeah, I, I, does it make a difference to them though? <laughs> they actually mind, and and you're seeing what in Washington Post reporting that they kind of, well, that is just what their PR men say, sort of an attitude now. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the way that it's portrayed, and that's the fair way to portray it is to say, here's what here's what the Saudi PR folks say, uh, here's what the State Department says, and here's what yeah. you know another source. Whereas says. before they uh, would have just repeated it as gospel. It's the point, right? This is a a major improvement, a little bit of skepticism. Well, in in the past, they may have just said this is a regional expert, <laughs> right? Yeah, there there you go, gospel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right, uh, hold it right there, everybody. It's Eli Clifton. We got to take this break and. Uh, you go read this article during the break real quick. Washington's multi-million dollar Saudi PR machine, and we'll have more when we get back. Oh, and I got a major scoop for you here, too.
Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. All right, you guys. Welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. This is my show, Scott Horton Show. I'm rocking out a little bit and interviewing Eli Clifton, writing here for Jim Loeb's blog, Loeb Blog, and uh, very important piece for looking at. Washington's multi-million dollar Saudi PR machine. And in fact, I need to move this lower in my tabs so that it goes on the list for running on antiwar.com later too. Um, yeah, very important piece here. And so, and you mentioned at the beginning of the article here, Eli, about Jim Loeb's recent piece about the neocons. And, and Jim, of course, is so great on this stuff and, and has been for so long that he remembers that there was a time when the Saudis were on Richard Pearl and the neocons hit list. They wanted to regime change them just as good as Iran or anybody else. Uh, and yet times have changed. Well, because Iran, basically, is that about right? Yeah, I think that that is probably the the the, the short version of it. Um, you know, to, to put it another way, the, the the neocons appear to be embracing the philosophy of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, uh, and certainly enemy number one to them. Uh, not recently, probably over the past you know five to ten years, has been Iran. Um, They've largely failed in their recent efforts to derail the nuclear agreement, although it hasn't been fully implemented yet either. Um, and they see what the Saudis is doing is the closest to, to what they would want to see done, which is that, fine, exacerbate regional tensions, destabilize the region, um, try to get Iran to act out. Um, these are all, you know, neocons are very often associated with with pushing for sort of the, the far right in Israel's politics of Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party. Uh, and when you see the things that have happened uh, under Netanyahu in relation to Iran, the assassination of, of nuclear scientists, uh, the, the, the alleged espionage uh, that's gone on within Iran, um, you know, these are all things that, that to some degree were designed to fan flames. And the fact that the Saudis are now uh, taking a different uh, tact on that same strategy uh, seems to be OK by them. And we saw, you know, I think it was Patrick Clawson at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, um, you know, doing everything he can to say that this is the Iranians fault. I know Elliot Abrams did the same. Um, and, and they're trying to, to frame this as being as being that this is actually the Iranians acting in a uh, irresponsible manner. Uh, and for the most part, I, surprisingly, I, I don't think that that narrative has really taken hold in an effective way. Yeah. Well, I never mind the real details like Gareth Porter's recent piece about how all the accusations, all of them, 
about Iran backing the Houthis in Yemen are basically thin air, where even the skeptics say, well, there was a little bit of support back years ago. He's saying, nope, not even that. Right. I mean, and in even, I mean, pretty much all the balanced reports I've heard now about Yemen suggest that, you know, even if there is, if there is a South, an Iranian involvement, it is really limited. Um, this has more to do with, uh, Yemen's politics and with, uh, and moreover with Saudi Arabia wanting to create and hold on to a sphere of influence that includes Yemen, uh, and that Yemen has its own complicated, uh, you know, political factions. Well, and, plus and, American and, and intervention there over the last decade has made it this way as well. All our support for Assad. There's that great piece, what, four or five years ago now, Boy Time Flies, where Jeremy Scahill wrote in The Nation, uh, America's Yemen policy backfires, something like that. About how everything that we paid solid to do ended up doing nothing but make Al Qaeda stronger and the Houthis stronger. Right. This has been a long time in the making. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard and, to describe and, and, any and, of these crises uh, without pointing out America's role and making it worse. Not not that they own every aspect of it, but they can't find a crisis that they don't want to set on fire. Right. And in the case of Yemen, it's important to look at the fact that, you know, in the past over the past 10 months, for sure, uh, Saudi Arabia has become sort of the leading uh, uh, outside uh, in- interventionist force there, where in the past the United States have been doing uh, various classified operations, allegedly, and, uh, and and certainly conducting drone strikes. Now that seems to have been overshadowed by uh, Saudi, you know, explicit military intervention. But where do those weapons come from? The majority of the Saudi arsenal is coming, uh, for, or certainly of their smart bombs and high-tech missiles and weapons is coming from the United States. Um, and that's something that's probably perhaps even more important to look at when we're talking about Saudi influence in the United States, that the number I gave for their lobbying is $6.78 million per year. Um, but from 2007 to 2014, Saudi Arabia did $86 billion in arms trade agreements with the United States. So that's some serious money, and you better believe that the arms manufacturers in the United States have their own lobbyists. Right. In fact, that was part of Gareth's other piece the same day or two days before or whatever it was about how the military was really hesitant to uh, go along with the more or less, you know, pro-jihadist policies, at, at least de facto pro-jihadist policies in Yemen and in Syria, but it's not like they were really willing to uh, threaten to disrupt their arms agreements with the Saudi kingdom over it. I mean, hey, you guys want to back out on this for a go ahead. It's not like we'd prefer that you stop and we get we have to stop selling you F-16s. Right. Well, I mean, and not to not to go down too far down a conspiratorial hole here, but even if the military, United States and senior leadership were concerned about the ongoing transfer of high tech weapons to Saudi Arabia, they wouldn't necessarily have the, the political strength to to stop it, especially when you have that much money changing hands between U.S. defense contractors and the Saudi government. And those defense contractors have a very active presence in Washington, D.C. Sure. Well, and, you know, the Pentagon has a very strong presence in the on the boards of directors of these, uh, you know, military companies and and around they go in their iron triangle. So there's not much to differentiate the generals and admirals from the directors of Lockheed at this point. You know, it seemed like. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there, there's there's clearly overlap there. Yeah. I mean, it'd be nice if I was the one who coined the phrase Iron Triangle to replace revolving door to to show just how mean it can be or whatever, but it wasn't me. It was people who know a lot more about this stuff than me that came up with that one. 
and uh, it sure seems like a pretty apt description. But now, so let me ask you this, too. What about Houston? Because uh, all the oil companies, they have their relationship with Saudi Arabia, or I guess not all of them, but some of them do, and they've got a lot of political power, and um, they must have some kind of say in this. You know, that's an interesting question, and one, and one that I've sometimes looked for evidence of. Um, and it's possible that they are lobbying on these issues. I think when it comes to, to you know, for instance, intervention in Yemen, um, that would be more of a matter. If the oil companies had gotten involved in lobbying on that, that would be really the Saudis phoning in a favor to the oil companies. And uh, at this point, I, I haven't seen or heard evidence that, that the oil companies have any real interest one way or the other there. Obviously, they want to keep up good relations with Kingdom, but uh, I, I think that they've, they've at least it, to my knowledge, stayed away from it. And, and as I say, that there's, there's some actors here that have far more deep financial interests, and those would be uh, the defense industry. I mean, when Lockheed Martin is looking to do an 11 and a quarter billion dollar sale of warships to Saudi Arabia, um, you know, th- that's a pretty clear connection with uh, Saudi Arabia's regional military ambitions. Yep, absolutely. And then, uh, well, we're out of time. You know what? Let me record you into the break for just 30 seconds or something here. I just want to ask you if you had seen these recent polls about how horrible and evil all Muslims are that were done by the Clarion Fund. And if you could comment on, you know, at least the background. I know you know at least the background of this group and where they're from and, and maybe a little bit more about their results if you happen to know. Uh, well, I haven't looked at their latest polls. I'd be highly suspicious of anything coming out of the Clarion Fund. Uh, they're a group that are tied back to sort of originated out of this ultra-Orthodox uh, group called Aish HaTorah, um, this pro-settler group. Uh, uh, the Clarion Fund has had uh, uh, employees who, who were settlers, actually. Um, and the Clarion Fund has a long history of trying to inject Islamophobia into the American political discourse. Uh, their most impressive effort of this was when they sent out a multi-million dollar campaign to send out uh, an Islamophobic documentary before the 2008 election, thinking that it's a swing state voters, thinking that it would possibly swing things against uh, Barack Obama. Clearly, it didn't work, uh, but they've been omnipresent. In, in, in the Islamophobia sphere, uh, constantly producing documentaries. They did one about Iran, trying to basically promote the idea that the only way to stop Iran is through military intervention. Um, they, they, are, they are an ultra-hawkish group, and they've always been highly secretive about um, who they actually are, who they represent, uh, and truthfully about how many of their employees and stakeholders are in the United States and how many of them are in other countries. Mm-hmm. And now they're facts. You just don't like them, or they're not really facts? Uh, well, they, cer- they certainly have uh, made uh, assertions in the past that, that sort of would, would test one's, uh, uh, you know, it, it, some of them don't, just don't pass the laugh test. They've tried to compare uh, you know, Islam to, uh, to the Third Reich. They've tried to suggest uh, they've certainly been one of the groups trying to place, I think it was in the Third Jihad, their documentary, they tried to place, uh, uh, you know, uh, Muslim officials and Muslim clerics as somehow responsible for inspiring the Holocaust. Um, I mean, they, they, ha- they have a singular worldview, which is that everything wrong in the world originates from Islam and from Muslims. Uh, and you, know, you, you don't have to look too closely at some of the things they're saying to, to start to, to raise serious questions about what their agenda is. And, 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 and some of these things just don't pass the, a logical test or a historical one. All right, there you go, everybody. That is the great Eli Clifton writing this time at loblog.com, loblog.com, Washington's multi-million dollar Saudi PR machine. Thanks very much, Eli. Thanks for having me. And we'll be right back, y'all. Hey, I'm Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime Future Freedom author Scott McPherson. 
freedom and security, the Second Amendment and the right to keep and bear arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the right to keep and bear arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it taste good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at DarrenSCoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world, all specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. DarrenSCoffee.com. Use promo code SCOTT and you get free shipping. DarrenSCoffee.com. Hey, check it out, man. The wife got me the Force Awakens Visual Dictionary. It's really cool. And, you know, she already got me this other one. What is this? Oh, so this one is the Incredible Cross Sections. And then this other one is the Visual Dictionary. I don't know if these two are in competition with each other or what, but they're cool, man. I like Star Wars. Anyway, that's cool. Uh, you know what? You're going to have to sign up for the podcast feed. Or go check out the archives later. Make sure you hear the end of that Eli Clifton interview where he talks about the professional Islamophobes. Anyway, uh, yeah, good old Eli Clifton, man. He does good journalism. Hmm, Cindy Sheehan wrote a thing. I hadn't thought of her in a minute. Let me see here. Oh. I don't know. Alright. Uh, yeah, the show. Let's see. It talks about all that. Uh, it's kind of hard to choose. I do have a chip on my shoulder about Israel. Eh. You know, uh,. Now I want to talk about the cops. I hate the cops. can't believe everybody loves the cops. I mean, you might have met a nice cop once or whatever, but man, do you not see what they do to people every day? Hey, here's a cop who admits planting a bullet in a murder case, and all of his uh, colleagues at the uh, police department and the DA, they say, we didn't need this fake evidence. We had a conviction here. Now the guy's going to get the charges dropped. They framed him up. This is These guys have a monopoly on being your security force, supposedly, on uh, administering the crime scenes and on trying the accused. And either they framed an innocent man, thereby letting a murderer go free, or they framed a guilty man, thereby letting a murderer go free. Imagine, this is somebody who killed somebody that you love. Someone that matters to you gets murdered. And then these cops, who are no better than a bunch of murderers themselves completely botched the case and the perpetrator is a free man does that seem right to you 
Oh, well, that only happens all day, every day, in every state of the union. Oh, come on. Don't pretend like you don't think that this happens all day, every day, in every state of the union. These cops framing up whoever they feel like. Doing whatever they want. Killing whoever they want. Cop who beat pregnant woman and did not get fired or prosecuted over it at all, now accused of raping another pregnant woman. This, of course, is in Russia, where the cops are terrible criminals. No, this is in Chicago, Illinois. A police officer accused of past... No, I'm not even going to read it. Go read it at the Free Thought Project, if you can stand it. Go look at the Free Thought Project for... 45 minutes go trolling through that thing and see what you think about things at the end of that. Holy crap. There's police and there's a war, but it's not a war on police. It's a police war against the people of this country. They are absolutely out of control. Not of the state that they work for, but of us. And by the way, that's going to be the Trevor Tim interview on Monday. He wrote this great piece Making a Murderer, that is the new uh, Netflix show about the apparent framing of this guy Stephen Avery in Wisconsin. Making a Murderer depicts miscarriages of justice that are not at all rare. You know, this is kind of my thing about one of my problems with the Empire, the whole welfare state and regulatory state and everything. If you can have a government at all, And it's going to have a monopoly on things like criminal justice, as they call it. It seems like all of the attention of the democracy should be focused on that and making sure that it's all right, that it's fair, that people are convicted, you know, on evidence beyond a shadow of a doubt, that The burden of proof really is on the state. That victimless crimes are no crimes at all. That the powerful are held to account just like regular folk. Etc, etc. These basic precepts of having a limited constitutional republic and a judiciary system and all of this stuff. If our government wasn't doing every other thing imaginable under the sun... And this was its only job. Civil and criminal courts. And and nothing else, basically. Then maybe, maybe, having free and regular elections all the time, uh, and a free press and vigorous debates about these subjects based on, you know, reason and stuff like that, um, could guarantee a free society. Or one that, or I guess one that has a something that you could call a fair criminal justice system. But the idea of that, as they sell it to us in grade school, compared to the reality in America, and the way they sell it to us on TV, law and order especially, man, they make it all seem so publicly interested. And so as soon as somebody gets a government job, they're stopping an individual human being who cares about themselves at all. They only care about taking good, good care of you. 
They only care about getting to the real, real truth. Yeah, right. And the reason nobody believes in that anymore, other than people who watch too much damn TV, which maybe is too many people, but is because it's just not plausible in an age of social media. That's the thing about it, man. I've had very, very normal, non-political people say to me, Oh my God, my Facebook feed is full of criminal cops getting away with blue bloody murder all day, every day. It's insane. It's insane. You can't get away from it. If you have a Facebook page, then your news feed is full of killer cops. You just can't get away from it. You don't have to be left, right, or political, or libertarian, or political at all to be just beside yourself trying to figure out what's going on here. I saw a funny joke on, uh, or a crack on Twitter where the guy said, yeah, it's amazing the way that as soon as video cameras became ubiquitous, all of a sudden police brutality did too. Huh. Yeah, I think maybe we're on to something here, huh, guys? And if you read Trevor Tim, first of all, Trevor Tim is a lawyer. I one time accused him of not being a lawyer. He said, no, I'm a lawyer. Oh, okay. First of all, he's a lawyer. He really does know this stuff. And he's some kind of liberal or progressive or whatever, but he doesn't come across as any sort of socialist that I would hate. All I ever hear him writing is about things the government is doing wrong that they must stop doing. I never hear him say government must promise everybody this, that, or the other thing. It's just not his beat, man. It's just he might as well be one of us. It doesn't matter. Making a murderer dis- depicts miscarriages of justice that are not at all rare. And it's very well done piece. I do hope you'll look at it. In fact, at the end, he links to a new study that was written a couple of months ago by some professor, but he says is, you know, written basically. Uh, in a way that is accessible enough for laymen. It's not full of too much jargon and too many uh, obscure footnotes or whatever, that anybody can read it. And it really explains how the American criminal justice system is just corrupt to its core, top to bottom. The bill, are, All those protections of the Fifth and Sixth Amendment are basically, and Eighth, are just dead. They just don't exist, really, not in practice. Oh, you might have heard of them. The Bill of Rights, have you ever heard of the Bill of Rights? Hey, you own a business? Maybe we should consider advertising on the show. See if we can make a little bit of money. My email address is scott at scotthorton.org. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get the War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. Hey, man, how's it going, guys? All right, so I don't know that it's true. I'll do just like CNN this morning, spreading war propaganda. We have no independent verification of this whatsoever, but guess what? This guy murdered his mom in the middle of the street in Raqqa. Well, let me know when you uh, have some verification there. It could be. I mean, those guys are bastards. They really are Khmer Rouge types. Patrick Coburn says so. Uh, But I got some unconfirmed news uh, that's pretty interesting. I'll tell you. One source says, oh, he thinks it's true, all right. And another source says, nah, he doesn't think it's true. 
but I'm going to mention it anyway, just because, hey, how interesting. And wouldn't it be fun if you heard it here first? Supposedly, possibly, possibly, Morgan Freeman is going to announce that he is running for the Libertarian Party presidential nomination. No way. Wouldn't it be awesome if he was like really good on economics and, you know, money and war and everything, dude? If he was like a really, not some Drew Carey kind of half-assed dilettante, not some Rand Paulian, but like a real badass. I mean, I don't know anything about him, anything about his politics. But wouldn't that be something if Morgan Freeman came out as a hardcore individualist? And, you know, in a Ron Paul way, could kick your ass in an argument about it, you know? God, that'd be great. Can you imagine that? Gary Johnson, go home and stay there. Morgan Freeman or not. Gary Johnson, move away to a faraway place and stay there. You dumb ass. Which is different than dumb ass. Dumb ass. Stupid Gary Johnson. Damn fool, that's who he is. Um, but, uh, I have no idea if this is true or not. A very good source says, I don't believe it. But I just think, man, that'd be possibly very cool. Man, if he's really got his act together as far as, uh, you know, reading up on business cycles and imperialism and such. Man, especially, you know, if he's got a real pro-capitalist, pro-peace point of view, a real Ron Paul point of view, so utterly and totally and completely lacking this presidential cycle time around, that could just be so beneficial. You know, you don't have to be a commie to oppose all this mass murder all the time. That goes for you liberals, too. <laughs> Anyway, um, I don't know, man. I guess we'll see. Yeah, and his last name is Freeman, so that's pretty cool. Free man. I can dig it. Oh, wow, I'm already in the last segment of the show. I better say something more important. I thought I still had one more left after this. Um, Trump on torture. You know, so yesterday... On antiwar.com, we ran this great piece that originally ran at Tom Dispatch. It's by uh, our friend Rebecca Gordon. And yeah, she's a leftist, but I don't care. Well, a progressive anyway. She may be, to, I don't know. Yeah, I think she's a progressive academic type, not too far left. But anyway, um, uh, I, I don't entirely uh, subscribe to her focus on international law other than the hypocrisy of it. It's the U.S. Constitution that the U.S. government is bound by and really the UN charter isn't a treaty it was passed by bare majorities of both houses this is not really uh, under the treaty clause i don't think um but anyway um all that aside all the geneva conventions and all that uh you know what what the previous uh what this and the previous administration would refer to as just technicalities all these uh, international laws that the american government helped to write and foist on the world by the way um Aside, war crimes are back in 
style, I guess, on the right. That's her article. It's about, and she gets it right, just like we talked about on the show at the time during the last Republican debate. Uh, Ted Cruz came out for carpet bombing, war crime. Uh, and then who was the other one with the war crimes? Oh, uh, Donald Trump. We need to hunt down and murder their families. Hunt down and kill the families of those who would dare oppose the U.S. state. War crime. And then Jeb Bush, he was the least war criminal of the three. He said, we need to get the lawyers off the back of the war fighters. And then there's a second part of the sentence uh, that has something to do with, you know, go ahead and let them do what they have to do to get the job done, right? It's like Donald Rumsfeld and the George W. Bush administration. Gloves off. Grab whom you must. Do what you want. Um, these are open professions of premeditated war crimes by presidential candidates. And the thing about it is they're all war crimes because, come on, y'all, on the face of it, we're talking about immorality. We're talking about killing innocent people, deliberately killing innocent people. Not, oh, boo-hoo, it was an accident, collateral damage when we massacred tens of thousands of people changing their regime, getting hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands killed overall. But outright, yeah, we'll just bomb the civilians until there's nobody left for the Islamic State to rule. Blah. We'll hunt down accused terrorists' children and kill them. That'll teach them to not oppose us? Are you crazy? Well, let's see. If they hunted down and killed our children to teach us a lesson, what lesson would we learn from that? <laughs> Jesus Christ. You have to be a real collectivist tribalist just stuck with your head so far up your rear end to think this way. They only understand one thing, force, cries everybody who only understands one thing, force. And Donald Trump says, oh, yeah, oh, hell yeah, I'll bring back waterboarding. You're damn right it works. Anybody who says, this is uh, Rebecca Gordon's article, she talks about this. Anybody who says it doesn't work, they're crazy. Of course it works. Well, actually, no, the people who actually know something about it, if by works you mean uh, gets actionable intelligence from the victims, no. No evidence of that whatsoever. It does work for... Uh, beating lies out of people in order to incriminate governments into being uh, partners with terrorists so that you can justify so-called preventive wars against them. <clears throat> if that's what you mean by works, generates needed lies for further aggressive war, then yeah. And then what did Donald Trump say? And of course he would, wouldn't he? He says, and if it doesn't work, they deserve it. Anyway, right, like the 500 and something people that George W. Bush sent home from Guantanamo Bay because they were entirely innocent, right, like them, or like the guy that they just admitted two weeks ago was a case of mistaken identity, they've held him there without charge or trial since 2002, because, well, he's Ahmed something. And this is the front runner by far. 
As Ernie Hancock put on his show earlier today, there's nothing he could say that's too outrageous. Just doesn't matter. As long as he's from New York and not D.C., that's good enough for the entire American right. You know what he said last night, too? I saw this, or this morning I saw this. He has called, Donald Trump has called for a 45% tariff on any, I think the way I read it, phrase, I need to read more, was on any American company importing goods from China. A 45% tariff. This is what made the horrible depression, the Great Depression, was the deliberate isolation and shutdown of international trade by New Deal, liberal, progressive, commie, rat, Republican Herbert Hoover. It was the single best thing that FDR actually did was repeal the Smoot-Hawley tariff, but the damage was done. And so this is, man, these guys, you're in a show, you're in a, this is a Hillary Clinton quote too. I swear to God, she found this, uh, she said this and I Googled it around. I couldn't find it, man. Somebody's got to help me find it. But I know that she said this. I know she said, I saw it myself that when you are in a hole, you've got to grab a shovel and dig, man. She really said that. You know, it wasn't a sarcastic thing like where she's paraphrasing Chief Wiggum making a joke. That was what she said. Well, we're in a hall. You just got to grab a shovel and do the thing. Do the, keep digging to your, the bottom of your grave. 